What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you enjoy listening to Corology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Corology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Corology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Corology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 83. There needs to be extraordinary respect paid amongst us to the different ways of trying to go about the same thing, and to make sure that we don't rip each other apart, and therefore do the work of our detractors for them, without them making to do it to us. Poet and theologian Padraig Otuma's work centers around themes of language, power, conflict, and religion. Working fluently on the page and with groups of people, Padraig is a skilled speaker, teacher, and group worker, and his work has won acclaim in circles of poetry, politics, religion, psychotherapy, and conflict analysis. I first heard Padraig on Krista Tippett's podcast, On Being, and was blown away and then they started talking about the fact that he was a gay christian (laughs) and i was like who is this person and and it has been a dream of mine since then this was years ago um to have padrig on queerology uh he's actually written on i have like a sheet of paper that was like my dream guests from when i started this podcast and, and padrig was was at the top of that list so this is kind of a dream come true for me so excited to have him on the podcast today He's the author of several books, including In the Shelter, Finding a Home in the World, and Daily Prayer with the Corimila community, which is a community in Northern Ireland that Patrick was the leader of for the last five years. Before we dive into this conversation, two fast announcements. If you've been listening for the past few weeks, you have heard these. Uh, First, Wild Goose Festival is actually this weekend. Uh, So for those of you who are coming, we will see you there at Queerology Live on Friday afternoon, this current Friday, if you're listening to this when this episode came out, at 2.30 p.m. on the Goose podcast stage. 
Second, for those of you who are on the West Coast or who want to visit the West Coast, I'm going to be doing some stuff, including a live recording of Choreology, and then a little sermon at Spirit Pride in Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, That's happening the first weekend of August, and for more information about that, you can head over to spiritpride.org. Okay, that's all. Uh, Let's just go ahead and dive in. Patrick, hi, welcome. Hi, guys. So excited to have you today. Thank you for joining me. Great to be here. Thank you. So I'll start with the question that I ask everyone. How do you identify? And then how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? <laughs> um, I've done a little bit of research, so I know that you asked this question. <laughs> and I am I'm not to be awkward. I am so uncomfortable with the word identify. Um, maybe because I had been on such a long journey to try to come up with something that I could identify as um, you know, identify as Irish, identify as Catholic, identify as male, identify as gay. All of these things have been complicated for me. And I was one time looking at my trusty dictionary of etymology and thinking about how identify and identical each come from the same root. And I realized that maybe my difficulty wasn't that I hadn't found the right thing to identify with, but that the word identify itself was too fixed. I'm interested in being open to being plural, being open to being many. And uh, therefore, I mean, I understand we all identify as things. I do identify as Irish, Catholic, poet, gay, blah, blah, blah. But I I suppose this question about the relationship to what identity is uh, troubles me. And I'm not sure that it is creative enough or generous enough for the question of being human. Yeah. I mean, I, I want to then kind of play with this idea of identity and, and um, it's it's difficult to then kind of to box, I think maybe box ourselves into those. And yeah, I, I do wonder, like, as those kinds of labels intersect then with faith, maybe with an expanse of God, like, I, I'd be curious to maybe hearing more about that and, and maybe your faith journey and, and what it's been like to kind of step into that plurality that you're talking about. Well, I mean, to think theologically, the question about how does God identify it opens up an entire ecosystem of possibility. And that's even before you land into language, um, to look at the created order, to look at the world, to look at nature, to look at the sky, um, to look at the seasons, to look at the diversity just on this planet, never mind on others. Um, if all of these things are of the created order, which is God, well, then... God is to be found everywhere, if we're to take it like that. And I think, I suppose, I, I see in the in the poetry of Scripture, um, poets and writers and historians and protesters and anarchists in the name of God, writing God as many things, some of those being contradictory all at the same time, some of them implying many different things all at the same time. And if that is so broad, um, well, then I think humanity might be um, benefited by thinking of ourselves in broad categories. I mean, I'm not somebody who says I'm not, I don't have any identities. I, I am Irish. I am. I was brought up Catholic. I am a poet. I am gay. You know, all of these things are fine. But I suppose the question for me is, is identity ever sufficient? Because if I have a particular relationship with an identity, does that mean that I have an expectation that I will share some kind of ground with somebody else who is Irish or who is gay or who is Catholic or a poet? It, it speaks to me of the um, 
expectations I might have when meeting another human person. And these days when we hear so many um, quick and easy identifications about how a person is regarding their politics, I have begun to become um, dissatisfied with the level at which a person's identity either raises or lowers my expectations as to the capacity of their imagination or integrity. And I think that we can begin to do something terrible to each other when we think that even those loose words we use for our current identities are in any way indicative of something that could be serious and dignifying. One word that always comes to me when whenever I hear your work or read your work is is wise is, is wisdom that that feels like wisdom and it it goes towards the direction that I was kind of hoping to go today around this idea of polarization and and like you're involved in work of of kind of bringing all people together and and I'd be curious like as someone who has who has walked this path of dealing with conflict and and working with people who who are on very different ends of of the political world but in the faith worlds as well for, for those of us who are maybe feeling or I'll speak for myself I'm feeling discouraged <laughs> in the here and now just paying attention to to the news I, I I'm I don't know where I'm going with that, but I, but there's a question in there. <laughs> there is. I can of, hear the question. You're circling around the question, um, like Rilke circles around God, that primordial tower, um, and partly it's because the question is difficult. It is, um, who are we when we meet each other, and uh, who are who am I when I meet myself? Is a difficult enough question to try to step into the mystery of. So when people from who vote very very differently or who believe on religious levels very, very differently from each other, or people who consider what progress means to be, or morality, people who consider progress and morality to be totally different from each other. What does it mean when we meet each other? Um, how is it that we can have a meeting that doesn't um, escalate kind of uh, table tennis of pre-arranged and utterly predictable language towards each other, and also doesn't diminish our integrity? How can we argue well in a way that's creative? How can we speak well? Um, that's always going to be risky and deeply vulnerable in the midst of being deeply powerful. And it, it, it's difficult to know how to do that um, without something called trust. Um, and uh, trust is very hard to establish in a room, but um, for, I suppose, 20 years now, I've worked with groupings of people who come from across religious, political, moral, um, points of view, particularly when it comes to either the questions of Britishness and Irishness or the questions of um, LGBT inclusion. How do we meet with each other in a way that doesn't feel like you're um, diminishing your integrity or collaborating with the enemy, no matter who you might think the enemy is? How do we address all of these things and walk out and walk in um, with some semblance of thinking that was worthwhile? Um, and I, I do think that... Um, Identity, while it is often very important in that environment, you know, you're recruiting based on let's get five people who think one thing together with five people who think another thing. When we come together, you are hoping that we can hold these things in a new way with each other where we don't diminish them, but we do deepen them and offer them uh, in a way of dialogue that can be opening up to some kind of unexpected exchange happening. But that can be difficult because usually, not always, but usually people in the room will have suffered more than other people in the room. 
and therefore how do you pay attention to the disproportionate level of suffering um perhaps people in the room who have the most power are the ones who are the most defensive and the, the, the first ones to say that they're being marginalized or persecuted because their um, inherent privilege that they've never examined is being questioned seemingly for them for the first time um i pay attention to the disproportionate level of power in the room and the disproportionate level of impact in the room some people might say oh we're just exchanging ideas and other people will say no you're actually discussing the substance of my very life and safety uh, how do you map that with people in a room and these days i i'm interested in posing those questions to the people that come together to say um we we do not share much common ground at all we're here in this room but that seems to be one of the only things we can say we have in common and how therefore we talk how do we build something like trust and relationship with each other and for me it is more and more the the trust that uh, people who come together might be able to argue themselves into something unexpected and do so by staying in the same room with each other and saying the kinds of things to each other that they never thought they'd have the capacity or opportunity or audacity to say to somebody we might be used to saying things about people behind their backs um, saying it to someone is a risk and it's always interesting to hear what are they like when they hear that years ago this is a small example there was um, a bunch of lgbt people and we were all planning a um uh, a gathering a, a tense gathering where we were going to be meeting with some folks who were pretty opposed to the inclusion and safety of lesbian gay bisexual and trans lives and um there was a few of us thinking okay who's going to go who's going to be facilitating all that and um one of the men in the room said yeah i'll be there absolutely fine and i was filled with anxiety because i was uh, in a role of leadership in this group and i i have to say something so i said to this guy who's a gay man listen you typically want to go from kind of 0 miles an hour to 100 miles an hour in 10 seconds <laughs> and i think that that is admirable and i'm with you but i think that that is really going to get in the way of um of discovering something with this group of people who are coming to us because even though they have all the power they have an escalated narrative of being um the persecuted and said how can we talk about this you know how you, you know you're welcome to come of course but um in the name of getting all the progress very quickly often any progress is um interfered with and and that's a terrible compromise to have to make to think let us take a year to take 10 small steps when we know we should have taken 100 small steps in a day when it comes to having this conversation that's an awful kind of compromise um and to have to say that to each other and we had a really fruitful exchange in that group of people so it wasn't just the when the lgbt folks met with the folks who were more conservative the 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 need to say all kinds of things to each other happened before we met the other and it was our capacity to speak with each other trustingly and in ways that was going to hurt um it was practicing that amongst us made us um deeper with each other when it came to meeting with folks who did differ from us very very seriously you talk about that kind of the power differential and then how sometimes the weight of those conversations can fall on those in the room with less power and that's something that i'm constantly curious about how do we hold that 
there's a certain weight that comes when we enter into those spaces and and we have to work with ourselves in ways that are different from from maybe from people in the room with more power which is its own kind of burden I feel like it takes a lot of work to be able to walk into those spaces yeah <laughs> of of our own work and and working with ourselves sometimes for years um, before we can re-engage does that feel true to you or um, have you seen that kind of happen with anyone? So there's no definite, there's no definite um, pathway into it. I mean, I've, I've been, we're ultimately talking about mediation here and group mediation, and what happens in group mediation um, when there's a skilled person in charge of the mediation. So that might mean that things will go well. It might also mean that that skilled person has an idea about how it should go and they guide it in a way that's actually inappropriate. <laughs> you can also see mediation happens in all form, kinds of levels, not just when um, when uh, there's, a, there's a trained mediator in the room. Mediation happens when there's housemates together and two people begin to triangulate against the third. What happens then? What, 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 do, we, what do we do? How do we respond? How do we live? Um, and sometimes uh, people land on the most creative solutions, even without having formal training, because formal training, all that's doing is trying to say, here's what we think has worked in some contexts. Here's a good way to think. But there's all kinds of creative ways in which people um, can move towards each other. Um, love helps enormously when people love each other and, and still have serious differences. Um, love and trust um, do help enormously in terms of being open to the possibility of meeting each other. Because sometimes in a, in a formal mediation setting, setting where, for instance, I, and I've done so many of these encounters where you have some LGBT people in a room meeting with some people who were really concerned about the increased amplification of LGBT narratives in, um, in church and in the society. So you've got, I suppose, to use um, inadequate terminology, liberal and conservative points of view meeting each other. Uh, people come in and it's not just that they're frightened. They, ha they are frightened of being frightened and there are all kinds of anxieties going on in terms of how determined they are to prove that they're nice, how determined they are to prove that they're the ones who have suffered the most, how determined they are to not concede any ground because they'll be considered to be some kind of traitor to their fellow um, team members if they are seen to be showing something. Um, how determined they are sometimes to A, practice the art of threat and B, conceal the fact that they're practicing the art of threat. <clears throat> so um, you might have it where you have a musician from a church who is trying to ask a question of a, of a church leader. If I came out, would I be kicked out? And then, you know, from the church and from my role as musician in the church. And then you might have the church leader on the one hand needing to convince himself that he's still being loving and on the other hand needing to toe the line that's really seriously established and um, none of that is really helping the truth <laughs> um, there are all these little pre-rules that we're playing around with all these internal tensions we carry with us and the each with each of those internal tensions they escalate the possibility of fear and then they escalate the possibility of fear creating more fear and so we're not telling the truth at all and we're not being with each other and I think um, what we do need is some way, like love helps. And if people have ambivalence towards each other um, uh, or, or antagonism, that really doesn't help because uh, then you can just begin to be bitter and cruel with each other and enjoy causing pain to somebody else or shaming somebody. 
And then how do we live with the fact that we're all going to live with ourselves afterwards? People will usually come up with a way to justify that they're doing what they think is right at the time. It's, it's a wonder that we ever get to have any fruitful arguments with each other at all <laughs> among people who love each other. And, and that, me, that kind of um, environment of person meeting person as a poet and as a conflict mediator, those things fascinate me. The layers in between ourselves and ourselves, um, the possibility that words can mean 10 different things, even when they're just uttered simply, how that we approach each other, the potency of language to somehow help us create something that might look like love in between the space of people who are finding it difficult to share space, um, create something unexpected between us. Um, that is um, really difficult and really exciting. I've become much calmer as years go by when it comes to questions of other people's anxiety and anger. Um, I suppose the, uh, the hope is that to be creative in the space of escalated anxiety um, and to say, we, we have nothing to fear here. Let's look at, you know, what is it you just wanted to say when you were in the middle of your anger? How can you make it um, less insulting, but more piercing? Um, and, and are you able to ask a question within the space of escalated anxiety and escalated aggression towards grouping of people who you consider to be your enemy or your opposite? How can we turn this into asking questions the likes of which we never thought we'd have the capacity to ask a person face to face? Then something really exciting happens because suddenly people are asking a question going, I need to hear you answer because I know I don't know the answer. And then we have something really interesting happening, something like a genesis. You, you wrote recently in a piece, and I pulled this quote out, um, that perhaps reconciliation is an introduction of some new agency to a connection that has had a taste of death. It involves feeling, maybe not for the person on the other side, but perhaps for yourself, and that which feels lives. It, to me, that sounds like grief. I know for me, often, when I step into those kinds of spaces, I realize behind the anger um, is is a deep grief of wishing things could be different and then and, and realizing the reality of, of they're not currently does grief play a role in this um grief is part of it yeah as is the fear of death i think one of the things that happens when we're in a when we're in a conversation is that on a primal level there's a kind of a fear of change <laughs> which and change always feels like a little death and so we are defending what we think we know will help us and frightened of what might happen if that were to be replaced or changed. And so there is preemptive grief there, as well as then serious fear of death and change. And I, I think that that's a, something about control. Control um, is very powerful for us. Even if we know it's very difficult, difficult to control our lives, control remains very powerful for us. And to relinquish, relinquish control can lead us into those serious questions of, how long more will I stay alive in this context? How much more will I hold on to power? And that can really feel like um, the loss of something primal and fundamental. Um, and so in any kind of exchange like that, I think there is a need to have a relationship with your own death. There's a need to have a relationship with your own limitation, a need to have a relationship with the end of your own power. Because without those things, you're likely to become increasingly agitated. Um, not that agitation is a bad thing, I suppose anger and agitation for me 
are very exciting energies. Um, and there's so much truth in them and so much power. I, believe, I think I've gotten calmer as I've gotten older, but also angrier because uh, anger has a great um, alerting and artistic power to it to show you what it is you think um, has crossed a line and then to think about that and to think, why is that? Is that because I'm frightened or is that because I think there's legitimately something to be feared? And uh, all of those questions are very enlightening. So let there be more calm and let there be more anger all at the same time. <laughs> Augustine of Hippo said, Hope has two lovely daughters, anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to make a change. It's extraordinary. It takes such courage. I mean, he was such a screwed up man. It takes such courage from him. (laughs) I mean, oh gosh, like that, that idea of hope being the product of anger and courage. Yeah. I mean, coming back to something you said earlier on, you were asking about, you know, these days looking around, is it possible to find hope? Um, You know, at any one time, there's people who are waking up to the reality that the world isn't perfect. And there's other people saying, what dreamland were you living in that you thought it ever was? That's that's another way within the disparity of power. So for some people, um, uh, some British people, I think, they might say 2016 with Brexit was the realisation that all was not well when it comes to questions to do with this identity called the United Kingdom. Irish people are like, really, you're just waking up to that now? God almighty, welcome to the last 700 years. So, uh, and that can happen wherever you are in the world, that some people are feeling like they've landed, like something new and terrible has happened, and other people are almost insulted then that they think it's only just happened because they're saying, look, this has been going on for a long time. Welcome to the diabolical party that is survival. And how is it nonetheless in the midst of all of that that we find something to hold us together? And I and I, I, I'm reluctant to think that it has to be any one thing. And for some people, they'll call it hope. Other people, they'll call it protest. Other people, they'll call it art. Other people, they'll call it creativity. Other people will talk about self-care. And I think all of these things can be beneficial in the midst of it, provided we aren't fighting amongst ourselves to be dominant towards each other as to what everybody needs to be doing. It doesn't need to be the same. But there can be unexpected things happen when we recognize that uh, different people doing different things might nonetheless be contributing to some emergent of the new. Um, both on, you know, Some people will say, let's focus on policy. Other people will say, let's focus on relationship. Other people will say, let's focus on protest. All of these things are great, provided we aren't murdering each other in the process. In the meantime, doing the work of our enemies for them. <laughs> Divide and conquer has not gone away. I think any power system revels when the people who are most dispossessed of power are divided and conquered among ourselves. I'm always when I hear, when I observe divide and conquer tactics happening among us, and uh, seeing that happen makes me wonder who's benefiting from this already. You mentioned you have you're more angry but more calm. <laughs> That sounds lovely. <laughs> like, like, how did you get there? How did you get to be more calm and yet honoring your anger in a way that that it, you're allowing it to take up? It sounds like even more space. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, poetry for me is an absolute lifeblood. I I think that like a day for me without poetry is a day that feels like I've been constricted in my breathing, uh, both in writing and in reading it. Um, and so it's 
absolutely vital for me to, to read that. Uh, this morning I read a, um, a book of poetry by Moira Donaldson, a po- an Irish poet, um, the Carnivorous is the book, and she's exploring age and nature and death and sex, um, these primal desires, and the language is powerful and crude and creating. She's talking about a horse being put down by the vet and um, just watching the horse buckle, a horse that she loved. And I think to engage with these violences of the world um, on a regular basis makes me calmer in being present in a world that has violences in it, not in the sense of um, calming me down, making me care less about them, but thinking, what can we do about them? What can we say? Oh, in the midst of this terribly long game, can we play the terrible long game of change? Oh, and I not exhaust myself and thinking I have to be the one to achieve everything today? And how can I make sure to be committed to doing today what I hope might contribute to tomorrow? And I, I think you need both anger and calm in that. I, I think conflict intelligence and conflict wisdom is so important for us because so often I see folks in the LGBT community um, be um escalated and outraged for a really, really good reason, and then tear each other apart. Um, I had a straight person come up to me once and say to me, because I hadn't said the acronym of LGBTQIA um, correctly or in the right order, that there I was no advocate and ally for that community. And I was like, I'm gay. Like, Not that that means that I'm perfect, but I think I'm allowed to, you know, depending as to what country you're in, people use that acronym differently. Um, speak to people of diverse genders and sexualities and identities. And I found it um, kind of funny to think, who appointed you as the guardian of the tunnel of the sun? Uh, and I find um, that tendency in myself too, just to feel like, oh, okay, because I've been doing this for 20 years, uh, therefore, you know, you people on the block should pay a little bit of homage to the folks who've been doing it for 20 years. But why? Maybe they're coming along with a new idea. Maybe, they're, they, maybe they feel isolated and maybe they genuinely think they're making something new up. Are they helping? And how can we do that well? And I, I do think that um, there needs to be extraordinary respect paid um, amongst us to the different ways of trying to go about the same thing and the tensions that we create with each other and to make sure that we don't rip each other apart and therefore do the work of our detractors for them without them needing to do it to us. And and anger and calm and wisdom contribute to all of those things. <laughs> I mean, in, in some ways, as you're, as you're talking about just reading poetry and, and kind of paying attention to to the violence and, and, and the death that is that's in the world, it's making me think of... It, in the world of therapy and the world that I sit in, like that there's this idea of when, when we actually can just name what's true in a room or, or what seems to be true in a room, things shift. And, and I'm hearing little bits of that, I think, in what you're saying of, of, of naming the world for what it is, saying the, the world is violent, the world is a place of death. And that that bringing uh, more anger, but also a sense of calm like that, that makes sense to me that just kind of looking at it um, brings that. Yeah. Um, Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, a Basque man, um, is a person I have great um, respect for. And one of the things he suggested was um, 
active detachment where he spoke about imagine your day tomorrow he would say to anybody who followed his way to imagine at the end of the day to imagine what their next day is going to be like and then imagine the things that they've attached great great importance to a particular meeting um a particular letter they're expecting to receive a particular whatever event that they think is going to be really lovely and then he would say in your imagination just briefly each night think <clears throat> How much power am I going to give that, that if it doesn't happen, for it to wreck my day? Um, which doesn't mean set yourself up for disappointment. It does mean, though, hold all these things alongside something that's more core to yourself. And what is core to you? That was another question he asked. And then he would say, you define that. I mean, he didn't have a template for what core to everybody needed to be. But he'd say, find what your core is and determine that nothing will take you from that core whether that's um, the fact that something beautiful you're anticipating doesn't happen or something really, really beautiful happens and totally distracts you from your core as well. Um, we can be distracted by all kinds of good and all kinds of um, terror. And um, fame for some people can be an utter distraction from doing the really private work that they're called to do. And, uh, and fame, I suppose, is participating in social media as well, you know, getting attention. It might be that actually privacy is what we need and fame, while it feels great, might be a distraction. So it isn't just the terror that can distract us from the core. It can also be the pleasant, but but uh, not good enough. <laughs> Take us away. And ultimately, I suppose you are needing to form a kind of a mature, wise relationship with disappointment in that way. And I, I find that to be really, really helpful. I found it um, um, very very guiding for me. And uh, last Friday, I was away teaching for a week and I just wanted to get home. And I woke up on Friday morning and thought, great, I'll be home by nine o'clock tonight. And I realized like I have attached a an exhausting week and the exhaustion of a week on this idea that by nine o'clock tonight, I'll be home. But I'm taking a flight. What if it's, you know, am I going to, is that going to make me really angry for the evening for the delay the delay delay um and what can be done to reorient that anyway as i, I got to the airport and indeed the flight was delayed i didn't get home till midnight and um i just needed to think right well i've got a lovely book why don't i read that i think that's a silly example but it can be really um important um, Mary Lynch is, I think, one of the best conflict mediators I know. She leads mediation in Northern Ireland. And I have seen her over and over again work with people to say what you were expecting to happen in the context of the mediation of a conflict may not happen. You might get to the stage where a conflict realizes it is not mediatable and it is not going to come to some kind of resolution. Are you going to fall apart or are you going to take this as information and learn? I have learned so much from her. She has guided me um, in so much of living, not just as a, in, in the context of um, language and conflict, but just as being a human person. That sounds like a spiritual practice. It, it, it sounds like such a deeply spiritual way of it just existing in the world. Like I, I'm, I'm thinking a lot of like Buddhist traditions of, of just kind of accepting what is. There's power in that. There is, yeah. Um there's recognizing that you might not have power over everything and, and saying, given that I don't have power over everything, what therefore am I going to do? How much power am I going to give it, even though it does have ultimate power over me? Uh, 
And I agree it is spiritual, but it doesn't need spiritual. I think sometimes can seem like it's something of the beyond what will happen, what we believe about life before life or life after death. Um, uh, and I think it's always worthwhile to reflect on the etymology of the word spirit. Um, it comes from the Latin word spirare, which means breath. And so a spiritual practice is ultimately a practice that returns you to the breath. And all the great world traditions have things that do that for you. Do you know, contemplative prayer, prayer five times a day, you know, uh, practicing a meta meditation, all of these things. Um, they're wonderful, but they're all bringing us back to something that is um, not colonized by any religious tradition. Uh, they just simply bring us back to the body and the breath. And what is the quality of air that you're trying to breathe in? And even that is sometimes denied us as well. And on the question is how am i going to how am i going to um respond in response to that you're a poet and i i would imagine I, that writing poetry is probably a return to breath in its own way and i'm curious about that and i heard marie howe once um asked the question you know what was the first poem and she said you know maybe it was a mother humming to her child um he fed her um and i think there there's such um intriguing imagination at work there in that to look at that poetry as part of the fundamental experience of being human we all hum songs we all have an earworm stuck in our ear returning us to the music of being and i suppose that's what poetry tries to do is to return us to some of the music of being sometimes that's really really consoling like a lullaby other times that's really confronting because the music of being is also a complicated survival. Um, the Irish education system, I'm so glad for it. I started school at the age of, well, started primary school at the age of five. And from the first week we were learning poetry off by heart in two languages, Irish and English. And that continued then until I finished school. Um, and, you know, that just put poetry into the imagination. We were learning poetry that was about midlife crises and about national emergencies and about protest and about war and about lament so uh, and about death and about homelessness and about poverty. Um, and that was a great thing to learn, to have to learn poetry off by heart and the anxiety and hungers behind which I didn't understand when I was eight or nine or 11 or 15. But nonetheless, you, you feel brought into a tradition that believes that we can still put language around something and that creates something. Just like the poets behind the writer, of, the writers of the book of Genesis put something behind that. You know, in the beginning, they started off in Hebrew, beginning with the letter B, which they shouldn't have. They should have begun with the letter A. So there was an audacity in changing a poetic tradition, even at the first letter of the first word, the first sentence of the first chapter, the first book of the Bible, um, does something creative and surprising and shocking and uh, doesn't start where people might have thought it should. And poetry, therefore, for me, is filled with the, the potent and dynamic creativity of um, paying attention to things that you... Um, don't know how to pay attention to. I was talking to a friend of mine's son a few weeks back, and um, he was saying that, you know, uh, 
he might need to go on um, antidepressants. And he was nervous about it. And I went, write a letter to the antidepressants, then write a letter back. You know, what would they say? What's that conversation inside you? You know, give it some creativity, personify it, create some of the plurals of you in tension with themselves, arguing within yourself. Which is to say that, that that's going to give a template for how we should respond, but it'll certainly open it up and he'll hear parts of himself. Mm-hmm. Poetry. Mm-hmm. Maybe to end, who are some of those poets, those voices that you then turn to in kind of this, I mean, you mentioned reading poetry every day. Who are those people who you return to again and again? You've mentioned some of them. Yeah, uh, Marie Howe, I return to her very regularly. Um, Kai Miller is a Jamaican poet. Uh, he has a new book coming out this year. So I have um, just begun rereading all his old stuff in preparation for his new stuff. I'm a big fan. I've been taking a long safari through the work of another um, uh, Jamaican poet, Lorna Goodison. She's the current um, poet laureate of uh, Jamaica. Um, the uh, the just recently finished Port Laureate of the United States, Tracy K. Smith, is amazing. I drove 100 miles a few weeks ago to hear her recite in Dublin. And the new Port Laureate of the United States, Joy Harjo, is overwhelming. Um, work. Her, her work is um, genius and deeply rooted in the earth and in being utterly grounded in the tangible suggests something of the transcendent and ethereal in a way that um, nothing else can. Um, uh, Sappho, you know, the first recorded female poet um, w- whose work only survives in fragments from the island of Lesbos. I, I love turning to her work because um, we only have these little fragments. Um, she has this one fragment from the middle of a long poem that says, I do not know what to do, two minds in me. I find such comfort in that to think, oh my God, that anxiety has been around for hundreds of years. There's troubling poets too. I turn to uh, Sean O'Riordan and Martino Dirroin, are two Irish language poets whose um, loneliness and lamenting I have such strong connection with, but whose um, limitation when it comes to how they write about women I find really um, concerning and I find it fortunately illuminating about certain forms of Irish mentality when it came to the imagination of who women are and what their civic and artistic contribution is. So poetry, um, in the name of being the music of being, sometimes reflects the terrible music of being, too. And I think uh, that needs to be paid attention to. Um, uh, Claudia Rankin, uh, American poet with um, Citizen and Don't Let Me Be Lonely, in the last 10 years, her her work has been um, overwhelmingly revealing of the way that poetry needs to grapple with things um, that uh, discomfort us and uh, doesn't land us gently into an easy resolution. Um, I can actually be speaking for about two more hours, <laughs> if you like, about, about the poets that I've been reading. Emily Dickinson, uh, amazing. Um, Dear is a contemporary Irish language and English language poet. Nuala Nicono is a poet who writes only in Irish. And she um, wrote in an essay recently that she lives with the reality that she she writes in a language that might be dead before she is, and what extraordinary language to put in, um, to put in writing. I I mean Raymond Antrobus, a British Jamaican poet, is amazing. Ali Kobiak, um, Indigenous Australian poet. Um, there are 
I mean, whether one is into poetry or not, poetry is such vital information about the music that people are hearing and seeking to elevate and reflect on. Disturbs souls and does everything in between. And I think in in each attempt of poem of poetry, people are trying to create um trying to create a music of genesis to reflect on the world that should be, the world that is, the world that shouldn't be. And so therefore every attempt is um, something close to a personal scripture and worthy of such respect. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Patrick, for joining me. This has been a delight. <laughs> you can find Padraig over at his website, padraigotuma.com. Be sure to pick up one or more of his books. They're all so good. And then head over and listen to his interviews with Krista Tippett over at On Being, uh, which is a podcast that you can get wherever you get podcasts. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Quirology is produced to support by its listeners. To find out how you can help keep Quirology on the air, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support. A really easy way to support the podcast is by leaving a rating and a review. Do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRoberts.com review and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas of what you want to hear on the show or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. And until next week, y'all, Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.